Well, good morning, Four Oaks. It is great to see you all this morning, old friends and new. I hope you had a chance to uh, meet somebody new or to catch up with somebody uh, who's an old friend from another Four Oaks congregation over breakfast. If you don't need, know me, my name is Josh, and I have the privilege of serving our East congregation. But Four Oaks has been my church for most of my life, uh, going back to when I was a teenager. And one of my very favorite things about Four Oaks people has always been our appetite for sound doctrine. And we've never been a people who are content to sort of uh, pick at the charcuterie board of truth. Uh, We have always been a people who would much rather like tuck the napkin into our collars and really push up to the table and like settle in for a feast. That's who we've been for years. And this is why uh, we, as your pastors from all three congregations, are thrilled for the Feast of Truth that is prepared for us today and that we are going to enjoy. And so it's my privilege to introduce uh, this morning's lecturer, Dr. Scott Swain. Dr. Swain is the president and James Woodrow Hassel Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. He is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church of America. He is a husband to his wife, Lee, and the father of four children. And uh, at the conclusion of our time, we're going to have some Q&A. And if you want to go deeper into some of the things that Dr. Swain's going to talk about today, I just want to commend uh, this book to you. Can't you see it clearly uh, from where you're sitting? Uh, this little green book, Dr. Swain's written many books, but this one is meant to be more for a popular audience. It's called The Trinity, an Introduction. And so uh, feel free to pick one of these up. I think you will be blessed by it. Uh, Dr. Swain is just a wonderful scholar, teacher, uh, thinker, and churchman. Uh, Many of your pastors, including me, uh, studied under him uh, in our seminary journey, and we have just been formed powerfully and profoundly by his ministry and his thinking and his writing and his care. Even this morning, I was actually looking over some of uh, my notes from his class on theology proper, and I was just remembering how much I loved Dr. Swain's classes. I left, I always left a lecture from Dr. Swain not just feeling like I knew more about God, but I always left them loving God more. And I'm so grateful to God for that. And so on behalf of your pastors, I am thrilled uh, to introduce and commend Dr. Scott Swain to our church. So would you join me in welcoming him as he comes? Good morning. Great privilege to be with you this morning and to talk about our great God, whom we have already praised. And indeed, I often think that theology is just choir practice. It's helping us to be better equipped to give God the praise that he deserves. Um, If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to be looking at a passage I think that's very familiar to all of us. But we're going to be looking at it uh, with a view to understanding what it teaches us about the Trinity. But before we do, uh, let me pray once again, ask the Lord to help us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have uh, revealed yourself to us through your Son and by your Spirit, and that you have done so by revealing to us your name. As we study your name this morning, we pray that in accordance with your promise that you would come to us and bless us. Illumine our minds, convert our hearts, open our lips that our mouths may proclaim your praise. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, our Lord. Amen. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I had the annual custom of inviting our termite bond people out to the house. <laughs> it's uh, something we do once a year, and as a Floridian, you know why you do it, right? Because termites are reality. Uh, but the thing is, uh, it's a very important thing to do. And I do it every year, and I put down my $600 or whatever it is to keep that insurance going. 
But it's something that I only think about once a year. And usually I'm not the one who thinks about it. Usually it's my wife who thinks about it and reminds me that it's time to do it. Um, well, the doctrine of the Trinity is sometimes like a termite bond. We know it's important, right? When you go to a church, you probably want to make sure that it's an orthodox church when it comes to the Trinity. You hope your, your pastors are sound on the doctrine. You hope you at least remember uh, the doxology when it's time to sing. But it might be something that we don't think about very often. And I think one of the reasons that we don't think about it is because it's just so hard, right? Uh, it's a hard doctrine. It's a doctrine that uh, really by definition transcends human reason to comprehend it. And so sometimes things that are hard to think about, even if we know they're very, very important, we don't think about them. But I want to suggest to you that that is really a, a sad situation, for the doctrine of the Trinity is really the crown jewel of our faith. It's the mystery of all mysteries. It's the teaching about not just what God has done outside Himself through His great works of creation and redemption and that He will do in His coming kingdom, but it's the truth about God inside Himself, His eternal life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And indeed, I want us to see this morning that God and His glory inside himself is deeper, more wonderful, more beautiful than all of the works that he does outside himself. And indeed, everything that he has done outside of himself is to bring us as people into a deeper understanding of and fellowship with who he is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, that doesn't take away the mystery Again, the mystery of all mysteries. So, in order to kind of set our expectations for the morning, we need to state right at the outset what our goal is in studying the doctrine of the Trinity. And here it is. Our goal is not proficiency. Okay? And by that I mean our goal is not to master the doctrine of the Trinity. Again, that's by definition impossible. You remember what the psalmist says in Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is what? Unsearchable. This is especially true when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity. His greatness is unsearchable. No human mind can fathom its depths. There's a real sense in which only God, the triune God, knows the triune God. Fully, completely, proficiently. And so the goal is not complete cognitive mastery. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says in one context, talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son, the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son, says people who have tried to master it, people who have claimed they could understand it, have only broken their necks. And it's true. It transcends human reason. Uh, the, the other option, though, is, is not to break your neck. If you think you kind of figured it out, and there have been people in the history of the church who've thought they've figured it out, uh, there's a special word that we have for them, and actually I think it was in the, yeah, there it is. It's in the, the title for today, heresy. <laughs> Inevitably, people who, who think they kind of can put the Trinity in a box of human reason and tell you how it works. You never really have to, to break the doctrine to, to do that. And inevitably, it rises to heresy. So the goal today is not proficiency. The goal is fluency. The goal is learning to understand the language that God has given us to reveal himself, learning to follow the tune, if you will, that scripture sings. All right, let's, let's try a little experiment. Um, we, we've already done call and response singing this morning, so, so, so let's do it again, all right? 
So here we go. And, and I apologize ahead of time for, for my singing voice. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Wow. That was, that was, that was amazing. So uh, how many PhDs in English do we have in, in the congregation today? Any? I mean, this is a university town. I've actually expect to see at least one around here. Okay, no? no well, well, hold on a second. How, how, how do you know how to do that? How do you know how to put those letters together and, and turn them into words? And how do you know how to put those words together and, and put them into sentences if you don't have a PhD in English? I mean, I bet if I started walking around the room and, 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 and asking someone to say, okay, remind me what a uh, present active participle is, we could, we could get into some trouble really quickly, right? Well, the reason is, is you don't have to have a PhD in English to know the ABCs. And you don't have to have a PhD in English to, to know how to uh, put a sentence together in English. And, and that's true of the doctrine of the Trinity as well. There's a right way of speaking and singing about the Trinity. There's a wrong way of speaking and singing about the Trinity. But you can know the right way and stay away from the wrong way without mastering it. Okay? You can have fluency. Uh, the children that run around the playground playing soccer do not understand physics and how it works, but they do obey its rules. Okay? And that's possible for us as well. Well, let's turn then to Matthew chapter 28. And I think I'm going to read verses 16 through 20, but we're going to focus on verse 19. Now, in a well-taught church like this one, congregations like these, you know very well that when it comes to any doctrine, you want to understand what the biblical bases of that doctrine are, right? And so if you're talking about the doctrine of the atonement, how Christ died for our sins to reconcile us to the Father, and you're understanding the nature of, of Christ's work as a substitutionary work, as enduring God's wrath against sinners, as, as providing the obedience that we did not provide. You're going to say, well, okay, uh, this sounds wonderful and glorious, but what are the biblical texts that ground that teaching, right? And there's many places we can go in the Gospels. There's many places we can go in Paul's letters. There's places in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 a glorious text related to the atonement, right? And if you ever are saying, well, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not sure that that's quite right, you know, what you're going to do is say, well, are there other texts you could bring to me to show me that this doctrine is true, right? And so oftentimes when we're, we're talking about doctrine, we're wanting to count up proof texts. What are the relevant proof texts that impinge upon this doctrine, that support this doctrine? But what I want to suggest to you is that in addition to the idea of counting proof texts, there's an important, uh, there's another kind of activity we should think about when it comes to looking at how specific passages of Scripture support a doctrine. We don't just need to count texts, like how many texts do you have that support a doctrine? We also need to weigh a text. And what I want to suggest to you is that Matthew 28, 19 is a load-bearing verse for the doctrine of the Trinity that in some ways is the most important verse in the entire Bible when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity. We're going to see why that is as we go. But there's a sense in which the Apostles' Creed, which we cited this morning, the doxology, which we sang, all creatures of our God and King actually has the, the grammar, if you will, of Matthew 8, 28, 19 built into it as well. If we understand how Matthew 28, 19 teaches us about the Trinity, there's a sense in which it's a key that can unlock the entire Bible and what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. All right, well, without further ado, then, let's uh, look at Matthew 28, and I'm going to read verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. 
And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, Matthew 28, this is the passage that we all know as the Great Commission. And there's a lot going on in these verses. We have a great Lord, Jesus, who is appearing to his disciples as he promised. He describes himself as one having received all authority. We have this great Lord giving a great commission, make disciples. And he tells us how to make disciples, baptizing, teaching. And then he attaches to this commission what we might call a great promise. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Well, what I want to focus on in this passage this morning is what stands right there almost at the center of it, the great name in which we are baptized in accordance with Jesus' command, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism represents a number of things. It represents the washing away of sins. That's why it's a rite that's performed with water. And it's, a, it's an authoritative washing away of sins that it represents, right? Because it's baptism in Jesus' name, the one who died for our sins. But in addition to being a rite of washing, that represents the washing away of sins, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, we're talking about Jesus' baptism in church tomorrow. But in addition to being a rite of washing, it's a rite of naming, right? Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In baptism, Jesus commands us to put the name of the triune God upon the one being baptized, And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means at the conclusion of this first session. But in short, it means that in baptism, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit claims us as His own, and we, in turn, are called to claim Him as our own. It's it's a naming ceremony. The triune God belongs to us, and we belong to Him as his people. We'll come back to that, as I said, when we wrap this first session up this morning. But I want to focus then on this verse a little more closely, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What I want to suggest to you is in this little phrase, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you have really a summary. It's concise and precise. Greg prayed for me this morning that I would be concise and precise. Well, Matthew 28, 19 is a concise and precise summary of the doctrine of the Trinity. And there's three features that I want you to kind of look at in this verse. First, in the name. Now, already this should strike us as a little bit odd, because he's going to say something about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in kind of normal English grammar, and it's normal Greek grammar as well, and every other language, you would expect him to say, in the names of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, right? So, if we said, could we have the three pastors of the three congregations of Horrocks stand up, right? We could stand them up and we could say their names. We could count three human persons, three human names, three human beings. But Jesus says, baptize disciples in the singular name that belongs to three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is an awkward and odd 
statement. It, it is, and, and it should seem awkward and odd to us. That's not how we count human persons. Three human persons equals three human beings. But three divine persons doesn't equal three divine beings. They share one divine name that represents to us the fact that they are one God. You know the hymn, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. I can't hit that note, okay? One God, three persons. Well, what is the name into which, into which Jesus commands us to be baptized? Uh, it's actually, I think, fairly evident if you understand how kind of both the Old Testament treats the divine name and then following that pattern, how the New Testament treats the divine name. The name into which we are baptized is the one name of God that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush, sometimes called the Tetragrammaton because it's comprised, composed of four Hebrew letters, Tetragrammaton. Uh, we don't really know how it's pronounced. Sometimes we try to pronounce it Yahweh, okay? But it's God's proper name, okay? Like Steve is a proper name. Sally's a proper name, right? Yahweh is God's proper name. And you remember what uh, the Lord says to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6? Yahweh is your God and Yahweh is what? One. He is one God. So, so Yahweh is the single proper name of the one true God. Well, this is the name into which we are baptized. And, and by the time you get to the New Testament, they're out of reverence for the holiness of that name. Various customs had kind of arrived in Judaism about how to treat that name. Sometimes there, there are groups of Jews who believe there's only certain times of year where someone could pronounce the name. Uh, when reading scripture in public worship, sometimes they would not even read the name. And instead of the name, they would, would say Adonai, Lord. Okay? And this becomes a kind of translation custom that you see carried on in the New Testament where uh, Old Testament passages are quoted that have that divine name. And instead of producing the divine name, they produce the Greek term Lord. So when Romans chapter 10, Paul says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's quoting Joel 2. And you know what Joel 2 says? Whosoever calls upon the name of Yahweh shall be saved. But Paul in Greek says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because that's one way of trying to honor the holiness of that name by providing a surrogate, a substitute. Well, another way of providing a substitute for the name Yahweh is to just say the name. And in Hebrew, Hashem. Ha, the, shem, name. Hashem is a way of talking about the name without saying the name because you want to honor it. When Jesus has baptized them into the name, that's what he's talking about, the name of the one true God. And, and as Moses says in Exodus 20, wherever I cause my name, Yahweh, wherever I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So this is God's name. It's God's holy name. It's the name that distinguishes him from all other would-be gods. Think of Psalm 95. For Yahweh is a what? Great God and a great king above all gods. It's a name that distinguishes him from all creatures. In his hands are the caverns of the earth, the heights of the hills are his also, the sea is his for what? He made it. Right? Who? Yahweh. So it's God's singular name. It's his holy name. It sets him apart from all other things. This is the name into which we're baptized. So that's the first thing I want you to notice. Second thing I want you to notice is this. Baptize them in the name, singular name, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is Jesus saying there? He's saying that that singular name of the Lord, which represents the one true and living God, 
distinguishes him from all other gods, distinguishes him from all creatures. Okay, just like Steve distinguishes this guy from that guy. Sally distinguishes this girl from that girl. Yahweh, the name, distinguishes the one true God from all others. That one name belongs to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So what are we saying? We're saying that the Father is the one true and living God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're saying that the Son is the one true and living God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we're saying that the Holy Spirit is the one true God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, that might surprise you, right? Sometimes we, we, we think of uh, Yahweh, the Lord, as the Father only, right? And maybe the Old Testament is about the Father, and the New Testament tells us how He sent His Son, and how the Son came to save us, and then after the resurrection of the Son, the, the Son poured out the Spirit. But we think of kind of the Father is Yahweh, and then you've got the Son, and you've got the Holy Spirit. But actually what Jesus is saying is the Father is Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh, the Spirit is Yahweh. And there are a number of ways the New Testament kind of gets at this point, and if we had time, we could look at all of them. Okay, but let me give you a couple examples. One of them, John chapter 12. Jesus has come to the kind of conclusion of his public ministry. He has been rejected by his countrymen. He is about to pull his disciples aside. Uh, and, and we're going to get several chapters of what we call the farewell discourse as he prepares the disciples for his upcoming crucifixion and his return to the Father as he prays for them and so forth. And when John wants to describe the rejection of Jesus by his people, he appeals to an Old Testament text that predicted this rejection. And that text is Isaiah chapter 6. You remember Isaiah 6 is the call of Isaiah where he sees who? I saw the Lord Yahweh high and lifted up, His glory filling the temple, angelic host praising His name, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The earth is full of His glory. And this is the passage where you have the prophecy that through Isaiah's ministry, though Isaiah proclaims the glory of this God, his people will hear, but they will not receive, right? They will see, but they will not understand. They're going to reject him. Well, John quotes these verses, or he alludes to these verses in John chapter 12 to describe Jesus' own people rejecting him. And he then says this, Isaiah said this because he saw his glory and wrote about him. Well, now hold on a second. Whose glory does Isaiah see in Isaiah 6? Yahweh. Whose glory is that, according to John? The Son is Yahweh. One more example with respect to the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, chapters that deal with the nature of the new covenant and Paul's ministry as an apostle of the new covenant. Well, he, he makes this extended comparison between the nature of his apostolic ministry and the nature of Moses' ministry. And the comparison has to do specifically with, that, with what happens in Exodus chapter 32, 33, and 34. Remember where Moses is at Sinai, Israel is at Sinai? They've just received the law. Moses is back up the mountain. Israel, under Aaron's leadership, commits the sin of the golden calf. The Lord threatens to destroy Israel. Moses intercedes. There's a glorious revelation of God's name. God preaches God to Moses. It's a fascinating thing. It says, Yahweh, Yahweh, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and so forth. Well, it's in that context that you also have the teaching about the tent of meeting, where it says that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And you remember what happened to Moses' face? When the Lord would speak to him face to face, it reflected God's glory. Well, Paul uses that episode to 
compare and contrast Moses' prophetic ministry with Paul's apostolic ministry. And what he points out is that the glory that shone on Moses' face was a fading glory. He says that's why he covered it with a veil. But the glory that is being proclaimed to the apostles' ministry is an unfading glory. And it shows the superiority of the new covenant and the dimension of the new covenant over against the old covenant. Well, it's in all this context that in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, because Paul is going to set up for describing how it is the Holy Spirit who converts people to Christ, causing them to see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. He says, now the Lord, remember Romans 10? What did Romans 10 do to describe whosoever shall call upon the name of Yahweh shall be saved? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Remember that little practice, taking the name the Lord to represent Yahweh. Well, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Now the Lord, that is the Lord that I'm talking about from Exodus 32, 33, 34, who met with Moses, spoke to him face to face, whose glory shone and reflected off Moses. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You see what's happened? Paul here identifies the Holy Spirit with Yahweh. And so here's the thing. Jehovah's Witness comes knocking on your door one day and says, hey, I'd like to talk to you about our religion. Uh, oh, you're a Christian, that's great. You know, we're Christians too. And we've got an extra book that tells you more. And you say, I don't know about this. I think you all have some wrong views of Jesus. Uh, you know, you, you don't confess the full divinity of Christ. You guys are, you guys are messed up. And they say, well, actually, you know, I, I understand you've heard before that Jesus is God. But actually, if you look at, there's only a few places in the New Testament where it says Jesus is God. And, and actually, if you read those rightly, and, and our, we actually have our own translation to help you along there. You see, that's, that's not really what it's saying. And so you, you kind of pause and, and maybe wonder for a few minutes whether you should become a Jehovah's Witness. But then you remember. <laughs> then you remember. God, calling Jesus God, is not really the most profound thing the New Testament can say to demonstrate the full deity of Christ. Because even in the New Testament... Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, yeah, there are many gods out there that people worship. For us, there's one God, but, but there are many gods. And so actually saying Jesus is God, in, in the first century, you're not saying that much. Okay? You can say a Roman emperor is God. Okay? There are many different gods that, that people believe in. But if you wanted to say something really, really controversial... And if you wanted to make the highest possible claim that you wanted to make about Jesus, here's what you say. Jesus is Lord. What? Jesus is Lord. And, and, and be like Paul in Romans 10, quoting Joel, <laughs> where you know exactly what Lord means. Jesus is Yahweh. He's the one true and living God. He's the great king above all gods, distinct from all creatures, Worthy of all worship. And that is true of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right. So baptize them in one name. This is the name of the Lord. The name that distinguishes God from all other gods. All would-be gods. As a great God, a great king above all gods. Distinguishes him from all creatures. And, and what Jesus is saying is this one God is the Father. This one God is the Son. This one God is the Holy Spirit. Now, if that's all we said there, we're not yet at Trinitarianism, okay? We might have only arrived at an early Christian heresy known as modalism, which says what? Yes, there's one God. Yes, the Father is that one God. The Son is that one God. The Spirit is that one God. But these different names are just kind of different masks that represent the same person. These Father, Son, and Spirit aren't truly distinct from each other, right? Just like you might say, uh, 
who are you talking to on the phone? You could say Paul. You could say Pastor. You could say uh, the guy with the, the Four Oaks sweatshirt on. Okay? Those are four different ways of describing the same person. Right? And, and that's what modalism says. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are just three different ways of describing the same person. So affirming that there's one God, affirming that Father, Son, and Spirit are the one God is not yet Trinitarianism. Okay? To, to get at full Trinitarianism, we, we've got to, again, pay attention to everything that Jesus sets out here in this one verse. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit share one name. They share the name of the Lord. But they are distinct from each other by these three names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those names do represent a real distinction between the three persons. The Father is the Father of the Son. No one can be his own father, right? That's a a contradiction in terms. The Son is the Son of the Father, okay? So, So these names imply a distinction and a relation. The Holy Spirit doesn't say it in this passage, but the Spirit is described in Scripture as the Spirit of the Father. The Spirit of your Father in heaven will help you know what to say in the day of trial. So it says in the Gospel of Matthew. He's described as the Spirit of the Son. Galatians chapter 4, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, which is also a fascinating Trinitarian text. Do you hear it there? God, the first person, sent the Spirit, the third person, of the Son, the second person, into our hearts, whereby we call, cry, what? Abba, Father, first person. Well, so these three names, they distinguish the persons from each other. And these are real personal distinctions. And so this is why we get to this this really, to our minds, incomprehensible reality. Because what we're saying, what Matthew 28, 19 is saying, is that the one God exists in three distinct persons. And remember, that's not how you do math when you're talking about creatures. Three human persons equals how many human beings? Three human beings. But when you're talking about God, one divine being, one God, exists in three distinct persons. And so you're going to say, all right, Dr. Swain, professor, how does that work? And what's the right answer? I told you at the start. We have no idea. (laughs) Right? Now, we'll come back to this in the next session to, to, to see a little bit how John can push us a little bit deeper on these things. But part of what's going on And part of the stumbling block for us is that the reason we get in trouble on this is that we're trying to think about God in a human way. Okay? So, in a few minutes, we're going to take a break. We're going to go get coffee and fill up your warm cup, right? So, let's say you're standing out there enjoying your coffee, and and someone comes by and says, oh, we're out of coffee, I really needed a coffee. You know, Dr. Swade is so boring. Um, but I've got to stick around for the, the, the next session or Lance is going to be mad at me. Uh, so I, I'm real, I really need some coffee if I'm going to stay awake. Okay? When you're standing there, you've got a choice you can make. Either you can have the coffee or your bored friend can have the coffee. Because the thing about it is, coffee... Coffee is not something that can be kind of multiplied without loss, right? You can say, well, I could have half, my friend could have half, right? Or I can have the whole, he could have the whole. It is, it, it, it's, 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 it's not something that, that can be multiplied that way. Well, see, this is, the, this is what happens when it comes to Trinity. We're trying to think about God as if he was a cup of coffee, okay? But, but, 
what the mystery of the Trinity reveals to us, that in a way that transcends all creatures, the singular being of God, the singular wisdom and love and, and power and works of God can be shared among three distinct persons without dividing God's being, as if the persons were kind of slices of a pie that together make up the whole. It can be shared among three persons without multiplying God's beings, that there's three beings. Like that's a, that's a, if you multiply human persons, you multiply human beings. But the one God transcends that in a glorious way, such that these three distinct persons really are one God. And, and how does that work? We have no idea. His greatness is unsearchable. And that's okay. All right, well, one more little distinction I want to give to you, and we're going to come back to this uh, in the second hour. And I'm going to show you a couple examples of this, one from Matthew 28 and another from earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember earlier I said, you don't have to be a PhD in English to, to know how to, sing, to say, sing the ABC song, right? To know how to put an, a, a sentence in English together and so forth. And, and, and the same is true when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? We, we can gain fluency without gaining proficiency, mastery, okay? Well, what I want to do is point out a little grammatical rule that Matthew 28, 19 teaches us about the Trinity. And once we kind of become aware of this little grammatical rule, we can have much greater fluency both as readers of the Bible, but also as we sing God's praise, understanding a little bit more fully what we're doing. So here's what it is. You got two different kinds of names in Matthew 28, 19. Okay? You've got the one name which the three persons share. The name of the Father, name of the Son, name of the Holy Spirit, right? But then you've got the, the personal names that the three persons don't share, right? The Father alone is the Father, the first person of the Trinity. The Son's not the Father. You don't call the Son Father, okay? Sometimes we, 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 we accidentally kind of trip over our shoes and we say, thank you, Father, for dying on the cross or something. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Son died on the cross, Okay? So there's one name that they share, but then there are the personal names that are unique to the persons. They don't share, that distinguish them as, as three really distinct persons. Well, here's, here's the little grammatical rule. The first name is an example of, of what we call common predication, common naming, okay? The second rule is what we call personal predication, personal naming, okay? And here's the thing. To, to understand how the Bible speaks about the Trinity and to sing rightly about the Trinity, we have to follow both rules. There are some things that we say about the three persons in common because they are one God. They share the name Yahweh, okay? They share all the divine attributes in common. So, so omniscience, a divine attribute, is singular. There are not omniscience-says. There's one omniscient God. And the three persons share that one divine attribute. They hold it in common. Okay? It's true for all of God's works. Creation. It's not that the Father created and the Son and the Spirit were kind of doing something else. Or that the Son redeemed and the Father and the Spirit were doing something else. No, no. The Father created all things through the Son by the Spirit. Redemption is a work of the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Sanctification, a work of the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Inspiration of the Scriptures, a work of the Father through the Son. All of these things. So God's name, Yahweh, all God's attributes, all God's works, and, listen, God's worship. The three persons hold all these things in common. The, the first hymn we sang this morning, All Creatures of Our God and King. Alleluia. Do you know that you know a little bit of Hebrew? 
Alleluia is Hebrew. You know what it's saying? Praise Yah. Yah? What is that? It's an abbreviated form of the name Yahweh. Praise Yah. Alleluia. Praise, praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit, three in one. Oh, praise Him. Alleluia. What are you doing there? You're actually obeying the rule of Matthew 28, 19. Giving the praise that belongs to Yahweh to the three persons. They hold it in common. Well, what about the, the other rule, the, the distinction rule? Well, the distinction rule doesn't distinguish them based on the fact that one of them is the one true God and the others aren't. It doesn't distinguish them in the sense that kind of one of them has certain attributes and the other ones don't, or one of them performs certain actions and other ones don't. The only thing that the personal names signify is the distinct relations the persons have to each other. So the first person is the father of the son, the second person is the son of the father. And this is an eternal relationship. Okay? As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Holy Spirit, what's his relationship? He's the spirit of the father and the spirit of the son. Well, these three names, therefore, don't distinguish the persons as three gods. They don't distinguish them in terms of three attributes. But what they do is they tell us that this the three distinct personal ways that the persons are God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, and we see really an inflection uh, of this reality, not only in God's inner life, the Father is the eternal Father of the Son, the Son is the eternal Son of the Father, the Spirit, the eternal Spirit of the Father and the Son. But we also see this outwardly in their works. Think of what, what I said already about creation, redemption, sanctification, inspiration, so forth, right? All that God does, all three persons do because they're one God. But all that God does, all three persons do in accordance with who they are personally. So the Father who eternally begets the Son, that's the orthodox language, does all things through the Son. God created the world through His Word and by His Spirit, right? The Son does all that He does from the Father. Think of John's Gospel, Hoffman. He says, I've come to do the will of Him who sent me. Okay, the Son is from the Father eternally. He comes to us from the Father in time, incarnate to save us. And the Spirit who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son Right? This is how he works in the world as the spirit of the Father and the Son. And so this, these two rules, right? common naming, what they hold in common as one God, personal naming, what distinguishes them as three persons, these are the two rules that help us not only to understand Scripture better, but to understand how we praise God's name as well. So let me show you a couple examples, and then we're going to take a break. First example Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, Jesus, the Son, having all authority in heaven and earth, do you think that's an example of common naming or personal naming? Well, let's think about this. If it's an example of personal naming, what are we saying? That only Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. Would that be right? No, so it has to be common naming, right? The Father has all authority in heaven and earth. The Spirit has all authority in heaven and earth. The Son has all authority in heaven and earth because they are one God. The Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. Psalm 95. Okay? Good. All authority has been given to me. By whom? Who gave Jesus this authority? The Father. So, Having all authority in heaven and earth is a common property that the Son has as one God. That he receives it from the Father is what? A 
It's a personal property. Right? The father receives from no one because he's father. The son receives from the father because the son of the father and the spirit receives from the father and the son. You see what we're doing? We're not saying that they're distinct in terms of their authority. What are we saying? They're distinct in the personal way they possess authority. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to show you another example from Matthew 11. We're going to come back to this in the next hour. All right, let's, let's, let's wrap it up and, and then we'll uh, take our break. Matthew 28, 20. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Why does Jesus command us to baptize disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? I mentioned earlier in my prayer, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 24. And in this context, the Ten Commandments have just been given. Moses is reiterating some rules about worship. And he reiterates specifically the prohibition against making images. So there's a wrong way of worship, and that way of worship involves making images. But then in contrast to that, you have this promise. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So here are the three things. The name, divine presence, I will come to you. Divine blessing, I will bless you. Well, that verse becomes a very important verse in Judaism, and actually even beyond the New Testament. You see how rabbinic theology develops this theme of the divine name and its significance as the mode of God's presence among his people, as the mode of his blessing among his people. Well, well, guess what? That name theology is very important for Matthew as well. You remember Matthew 1.23? You will call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Remember Matthew 18, talking about church discipline? Wherever two or three are gathered in my, what, name, there am I, what, in your midst. So what's the significance? Jesus commands us to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a way of giving us the promise that we have the privilege of invoking the name of the Father, the Son, and in the Holy Spirit, our maker, our redeemer, our sanctifier. And invoking that name, right? We, we're not just remembering someone from bygone days. We may invoke the presence of the great God, the great king above all gods. And we may invoke his blessing upon us. And so anytime we study God's name, Right? We, we're opening ourselves up. We're, we're inviting the Lord to bless us, to be our God, to be with us, Emmanuel, our Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this teaching. Please help us to hide it in our hearts and to sing it on our lips. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.